3: Hi, my name's Morgan from Helena,
1: Montana, and I support this smart and funny show and get exclusive podcasts at patreon.com slash partners in crime media.
0: I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, what's really happening at those tough love boot camps for teens? We'll get a look at the so-called troubled teen industry in the new podcast, The Lost Kids. Plus... Amazon Prime's adaptation of Homecoming is back, and its season two takes a sharp turn away from its source material. Join me to talk about those things and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist, and long-haired hippie, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin.
4: What's up, baby? Also
0: with us is journalist, true crime author, a former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat
1: lady, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello. I think I should be certified serial killer cat lady because my yes. cat's are on a bender, along with my dog, of (laughs) killing chipmunks, birds, rabbits, moles woodchucks its It never ends. I can't take any more death. Finally, our captain of Oak cynicism, the author behind
0: the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, the host of the hit Strange Arrivals podcast, and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. So, Kevin, big doings in our house this week.
4: Does it have to do with my haircut?
0: No. You mean your Which lack, I haven't had? Your lack of hair. I haven't had one either. Look at the grays. I'm, so a, I'm,
4: I'm starting to look like Christopher Christofferson.
0: Chris Christopherson. Chris Christopherson? <laughs> Was that his name? We were watching that Close. History Close. Channel show last night about uh, Ulysses S. Grant. Yeah. I got to go with Ulysses S. Grant for
1: that look you're going yeah, I'm for. i getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> At least you're president of the right I've got side. the man bun going. <laughs> got a man bun? And it's functional because then I don't have to do anything. I just put it in the man bun. Laura, I hate to break it to you. I think that's just called a bun. A bun.
4: <laughs> <laughs> when you have it, it's just a bun. When I <laughs> okay. have it, it's a man
1: bun. Yeah. <laughs> do you understand, Laura, That works well I do, but if you saw it, when you see this video at some point, you're gonna realize why I'm describing it that way because it is just so subpar as a (laughs) fun. Toby,
0: um, I have some bad news for you Uh, that I wanted to share. Okay. This week I became more famous than you on the internet, and I just wanted to apologize. And I More famous than me, (laughs) yes. And it was all because... because... of that moth? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that moth. Do you know how many Twitter impressions that photo of a moth has? It's
2: like more than half a million.
0: 25 million. Tw- Wait, what?
2: what? <laughs>
4: yeah. I'm
0: not kidding. And
2: only half a million oh. likes?
0: yeah. No, yeah. way more than My half a million likes. God. Yeah, 25 million. So, can, so let me just fill people in who may not have seen this, which is like eight people at this point. So I have this swing get weekend, right? So I now I'm taking off Fridays and Saturdays because things are so busy at work. And we were hanging out on our deck and I was on a phone call with my coworker, a FaceTime call, and I saw this crazy moth on the chair across from me on my deck. And I crazy like, moth,
4: like he was drooling and no, the eyes, it was or? like
0: bright yellow and pink. It looked like um, an ice cream cone with like sherbet and like strawberry and and yellow banana and, and strawberry lemon yeah. and like raspberry sherbet. So I turned my FaceTime phone around and showed my coworker Dan. I was like, "Look at this moth!" and he was like, "Oh my god!" And then I yelled into the house and I was like, "Kevin, you've to come out and see this, Kevin." So Kevin, who, you know, can't yell back because <laughs> of his vocal challenges, like five minutes later comes out in the deck, and he's like, "You were yelling for me. What's the matter? What's going on?" And I'm still on the FaceTime call with my friend Dan. and I'm like, "Look at that moth, Kevin." And Kevin, you literally threw your hands up in I was the like, air and' like, "Oh, my stormed God. away.
4: walked out from a, a moth.
0: <laughs> so then, because Kevin was not impressed with the moth, I was like, You know, I think this moth is more impressive than Kevin does, and I'm going to see if the Internet thinks it is, too. So I took an Instagram photo of the moth, and then I tweeted it. You know, you can sync your Instagram and Twitter, so it went on Twitter, too. And 25 million impressions later... It's been picked up by television news outlets all over the world. It's been written up in publications all over the world, including a couple of, like, content farms. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm huge in Canada, the Canadian Weather Channel, oh. whatever it's called, and the Canadian Weather Network. He <laughs> <laughs> used my photo. Board Panda, the Dodo, like, every place that makes viral content— celebrities have liked it that the biggest one was Tyler the Creator mm. uh, which my friends and my kids were very impressed by and um
4: Dee
2: Snyder Dee Snyder Sister. yeah from
0: Twisted Sister which you would appreciate what? Toby yep and <laughs> wow. uh, yeah it's been a whole it's been a week
2: He's a big Moth fan
1: <laughs>
0: Wow yeah and you know what I didn't do
4: Mention the podcast at yeah, all because Yeah because
0: I have like no I mean I understand how this is supposed to work when you have something that goes viral. You're supposed to like change your whole Twitter bio to promote all the stuff you want people to see. Mm -hmm. But I know better because I know the only reason people are clicking on my profile is to see moth stuff. So I didn't want to be like, hey, listen to my true crime podcast, guys. I thought that was tacky. And it's in my bio anyway, but I didn't want to be that person.
2: I feel like every time I click on some viral tweet. Like, there's a tweet somewhere down there that says, well, this really blew up. While you're here, check out my Patreon account.
0: Yeah, I didn't do that. I just put, um, you all like moths, and I really love that about you. I wasn't going to do that this whole – I mean, it's very obvious that it blew up, you know? I'm just waiting for Chrissy Teigen. Where is she liking my moth? Just saying. I don't know. So, that being said, you guys ready to start our review? Let's do it. Leading off.
1: There's a picture on the mountain trees and then they have a picture of the student, they're smiling, the picture of the teachers, you know, and the kids look happy.
3: In the mountains of California, there was a program that promised to fix troubled kids using a controversial form of therapy.
5: Kids would come to that school because parents were absolutely desperate for some kind of help, some kind of solution because they thought their kids were killing themselves. We were trying to save lives.
0: In 2004, Daniel Yuen's parents sent him to a therapeutic boarding school, which promised to help their troubled teen. But days later, the 16-year-old ran away and disappeared into the San Bernardino Mountains.
1: A staff call that said Daniel ran away. We report that to the police.
3: Daniel had walked off the campus that morning, and no one could find him. So it's a
4: better... Numb, completely
0: numb. We will
1: like, I? Oh kind of God. paralyzed. What I is do? The
0: in The Lost Kids from UCP, journalist Josh Block explores the underregulated industry of tough love programs, and in particular, the Southern California facility known as SEDU and its historical connections to a dangerous
5: cult. SEDU was not a therapeutic community, it was a, um, a school where kids came to uh, learn how to grow up.
0: Just imagine, like, sitting there in a chair with people spitting on you in your face, telling you what a piece
5: of shit you are. We weren't miracle workers, but we certainly produced a miracle or two.
0: Now, all six episodes of The Lost Kids come out on Wednesday. We are going to be talking about some plot points from the podcast. We're not going to spoil it too much, but if you want to just skip to our thumbs up or thumbs down review, we'll give you the time code in our show notes. Now, Kevin, you know where we know journalist Josh Block from, right?
4: Yeah, he did uh, *Escaping Nexium*.
0: Yes, I love him. I love his hosting style. Uh-huh. I think his reporting is really thorough. What do you think of him as an anchor for a podcast like this?
4: Oh, I, th- I think he's uh, he's really good. He certainly takes a story with significance and then wraps it in this true crime idea so people think they're listening to true crime,
3: but they're actually listening
4: to really important investigative piece.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, I think if we—what do you think about going straight right now? Yeah.
3: Melissa is another former resident of sea It's a snow-covered day, like the one when Daniel went missing in 2004. And together, we're trying to find the site of the old sea campus.
1: It feels so weird to be trying to get t- to sea and not
3: way. Melissa hasn't been anywhere near this place since the 90s, when her parents sent her to Sidu. It used to be that getting to Sidu was the easy part. But Sidu Running Springs is closed now, and the new owners have gated off the property. The only way to get a glimpse of the old campus is by bushwhacking up the side of the mountain. Yeah, this way? Or, um, or, or should I would we go down.
4: And so that's, you know, it starts off with the disappearance of Daniel. And that's an important story that they will come back to by the time they get to the end. Mm-hmm. But it's a much more thoughtful look at this whole industry around so-called troubled teens and about the different boarding school type, wilderness adventure type programs that are supposed to, you know, scare them straight and get them back to what their their mom and dad want.
0: Well, it's an industry. I mean, that's something that the podcast points out again and again. And I think anybody who's a parent who's had a kid... Who's, you know, maybe like been less successful in a situation than you wanted them to be or whatever? can a hundred percent relate to the idea of being at your wits end and you will do anything. Um, you know, just to help your kid get over something. And in the case of the Ewans, like, they want him to graduate high school. They want him to be happy. You know, they're not saying, like, we want to throw you away. They're saying, like, we want to help save you. Like, Laura, Mm -hmm. don't you relate to that kind of, like, feeling as a parent that you really would, if you can afford it, do whatever you can to help your kid?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I, I have to tell you, I have Googled these places, you know, and they look great online. And that's what I sort of took away listening to, the way that Daniel's parents remember how it seemed like this sort of great white hope for them and everybody felt so optimistic. And you see their websites and there's these kids, they're like, we're out in wilderness, you know, doing like wilderness trekking with small teams and therapeutic instruction and all this. But then holy, wow, if you look up how much these places cost, Mm -hmm. like it's like $75,000 a year or more more. for some of these programs. So that's what's interesting is that you have to think about, you know, you've got people that are, you know, maybe not willing, but that find a way to shell out that amount of money and then to have situations like this, because this has happened at other places. I mean, this isn't the only school of this type or something like this has happened. It's, It's amazing that we haven't heard more about these kind of places and stories like Daniel's. No, I don't disagree with you.
0: Toby, you know, the podcast starts and we do meet the UNs and they, they talk us through how they got to a place where they decided to bring this under the school. And they even talk about, you know, talking to him about going there and getting enough buy-in that he was willing to go check it out. And they sound so sincere and and they're so believing that, you know, something could help them. I mean, we hear that they like dipped into their 401k. Um, But the first thing that we hear about this program is that they have this approach where they just want to tear the kid down, like make them tell the truth, get them to their basest self so that they can become the person that they're supposed to be. When you hear that, Toby, like, what do you think, just when you hear the very basics of the philosophy of a program like that?
2: I'm not wildly enthusiastic about it. (laughs) One of of the weird things about this and I guess these other sort of therapeutic programs, you know, there's a wide range of them. Like, I I have friends who went and did Knowles, which is the National Outdoor Leadership School, which Mm -hmm. my impression is, is, is is pretty legit. And they weren't like having people screaming at them and depriving them of food and Making them not swat red ants off them or, or whatever. Mm. But the idea that, and, and you'll find this out later in the podcast, that you're basically making a curriculum or, or at least a philosophy of a, of a curriculum for teenagers based on this pretty radical, hard drug program that was like basically a cult mm-hmm. that just on the face of it seems sort of wrong headed. And they they do talk about how when you're a teenager, you're still having personality formation. Right. Right. that It isn't developed. So you're you're tearing down something that's in the process of being built, Mm -hmm. you know, just on the face of it. And I'm, you know, I'm not a clinician or anything like that.
0: Well, neither were these guys, Toby. Yeah, well,
2: exactly. (laughs) So that we're all in the same boat here. It would give me pause to think maybe there, maybe I should know a little bit more before I start doing this. Right.
4: You know, it seems like there were more psychologists involved with setting up the curriculum for Sesame Street (laughs) than there was for this program. And I think it was very telling. We get to episode, I think it's three, where we hear from a um, a former counselor, Mm -hmm. staff member, Mm -hmm. faculty. We don't even really know. Yeah, Randall, who had no experience in education or social work. Right. And he kind of said something towards the end of the interview about how, well, this isn't a therapeutic setting. Right. And you're like, well, what is it then?
0: And we should say, by the way, I don't want to give the impression that like any of us think that all therapeutic programs for teenagers are this, because this is about a very specific type of program and mm-hmm. a specific place. See do is the place profiled in this podcast, where apparently a bunch of celebrities sent their kids, uh, including a Paris Hilton and went to this place, which really surprised me to hear. And really? Roseanne Barr sent her kids there. He says that in the first episode of the Barbara Walters. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know, there are, like Laura have, I've Googled these places too. And there are very legitimate, very therapeutic programs that surround kids with support, in addition to the real academic setting and help them prepare not just for college, But just to be, like, healthy, uh, you know, community-building individuals and help them through recovery or different issues that they have. And then there are still places to this day, I know of one, in our neighboring state of Maine, I'm not going to name it, where they are still having kids dig holes and um, having them snitch on each other. And, like, community policing in the community of kids is the philosophy of how to build character. Like, tell on your fellow student if you see them breaking the rules. And... It's it's really something and it does not surprise me to hear that the rules at places like this and at CDU are you're not going to hear from your kid for a couple weeks after they get here you're not going to allow them to contact you and when they contact you they're going to tell you they hate it and here's what you're supposed to say when they tell you that Is it at all a surprise Lara Bricker that dozens of kids ran away from this particular program in California. Maybe hundreds of kids ran away.
1: No. When I hear about the kids running away and then I hear the description of this place, it's like something out of like a bad horror movie. It's like on this mountain and it's like out in the middle of nowhere and they're cut off from the rest of the world, basically. Like you're totally isolated. I can just envision trying to get away from this place in you know, the wilderness, basically, is what it sounds like. But you know, it struck me that not only are the kids running away... But that so many are running away, they have a PI on call mm. to keep up with this? Like, seriously, like a whole cottage industry has sprung out of this initial school.
4: I mean, the hundred, these hundreds ran away. It doesn't mean hundreds ran away, never came back. Right. It seems like a lot of kids ran away and but came back. But it seems back. like an
1: unknown number were never found.
4: Hey, yeah. I mean, it seems like it's hard to- More than one. Well, well yeah. <laughs> yeah. I saw
1: three in something I read.
4: Yeah. But it's, it seems like, and Josh certainly makes the case that the organization- seem to be pretty laissez-faire about going about finding kids when they've left the facility. And Laura's right. You have this place up in the mountains... And you see where well, there's kids running away. At the
0: Overlook Hotel.
4: Yeah. I yeah. mean, to me, it's like building a daycare right next to a highway and there's no fence in the yard. Mm. Now, it's okay for me, but for a bunch of five year olds, could be a lot of problems.
0: No. Yeah. I completely agree. I mean, Toby, when I heard uh, at CDU that they had these group sessions, and first of all, the fact that they call them wraps. Is ridiculous. That's like exactly what you'd call something for teenagers for their for their parents to think that they were doing something cool, right? Right. Um, but then you hear what they actually are, and they're basically just. I mean, the whole thing is built around disclosure. Say everything, quote unquote, horrible that you've ever done, and it sounds like for a lot of these kids, the quote unquote horrible things that they've done are basically just, like, teenage activity, exploring their sexuality, staying out late. You know, some of the kids, you know, were experimenting or involved with drugs and alcohol and so forth. But, you know, it seemed like there was a spectrum.
4: Sounds like the worst episode of Zoom ever. (laughs) 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 Bye-bye, friends.
0: (laughs) But here you are. You have these, these, you know, children basically having to disclose, 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 disclose. When he talked about the the, the cliffhanger, about it being, like, tied to a cult – Toby, what was the first cult that you thought of? Did anything spring into your mind?
2: Uh, Nexium.
0: Oh, I thought about Scientology, but yes, also Nexium. You're absolutely right, Toby. What is it about cults? Why do they make people do that?
2: Why is Josh Block always talking about cults? <laughs> I didn't realize that he was the one who did the Nexium. Yep. And then when you mentioned that at the beginning of the uh, of the broadcast, I was like, oh, that's really funny because I put a note about how it was sort of Nexium ish. In that it acts in a lot of the ways that a cult acts, but without having sort of the supernatural aspect to it. You know, it's more the sort of mind control aspects of things, buying into a program rather than buying into, you know, somebody as being a god or or whatever. It's probably power for the people who are running it, but I think it's sort of presented and and people who are in it think of it as, as, as like a bonding experience, right? Where, you know, I'm sort of psychologically naked in front of everybody. And what other what other um, situations are, do you have in your life where you have like similar openness, right? So that I think it becomes. You mean
1: besides making a podcast?
2: Besides making, oh, of course, because I do <laughs> disclose all my darkest and most troubling secrets. We all do,
1: Toby. I did last week. Oh my god, you did.
2: I'm still struggling with it. So, so I think that's as far as building sort of group dynamics and, and sort of a loyalty to each other. Which I think, you know, it's it's a complicated psychological thing if you're just going to be putting people on blast all the time and having them not fleeing. You know, there's got to be a reason for them to stay, it's a reason for them to buy into what's going on. And I think part of it is and, – and you get a, a similar thing in team sports sometimes depending on your coach – but the coach puts you through a lot in practice and training, with the idea being that it's a it's a bonding thing. Like you're 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 brought together through sort of suffering isn't quite the word, but collective uh toil. Suffering. That um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> sounds right to me. <laughs>
2: There's also the same thing happens
4: at boot camp or basic training right. in the military. Exactly. Right. Where you're broken down, you know, it's very physically and mentally abusive, but there is a curriculum to it and it builds you up for that purpose. So I'm not surprised it's that some also- a
0: choice. Well, no, that's to go true, there. right? <laughs> so I'm not surprised that
4: some kids would go to a program like this and get something out of it, but it's not for everybody. And it, it's like they weren't screening. They weren't screening with, for
0: mental health issues. Yeah. that's for sure. I just kept thinking that, like, how many? This is the thing about teenagers, and this is the thing that, like, you know, we've talked about with kids in our own family. It's like. As adults, and and there's a beautiful part of the podcast where he talks to an expert that addresses this. So much of teenage behavior is so confounding to adults, right? But a huge part of that is, first of all, because we push back against the idea that kids become adults and they're becoming adults when they live with us, and that's hard. Mm-hmm. So like there are things that kids do in the you know, process of growing up that like is icky to us. like just it's like sort of like naturally icky. like we don't want to know about our kids like having sex or whatever. And the way a lot of parents deal with that is just to like say it can't happen, it can't happen, it can't happen, which is not healthy, but that's what a lot of parents do. The blame is placed entirely on the child. So the parents are not at fault. This is the kid's problem. Everything that goes wrong has been caused by this kid's bad behavior. So it fits in with a very individualistic, capitalistic way of seeing things. Um, There's another piece to it, though, where a lot of parents can't deal with the fact that their kids are growing up and they really can't deal with the fact that their kids are becoming sexual beings, and now they're getting into trouble and causing problems. And so there's a sort of anger at youth itself that kind of gets expressed in these programs. The other thing that happens is that we sometimes what we're calling teenage behavior is actually a symptom of depression. Like, we accept as adults that, like, all of our friends have depression and take medication and so forth. But when we see a teenager doing something annoying, like, we don't ask that question immediately. We're just like, oh, it's teenage stuff. Like, he's just being rebellious. He doesn't want to get out of bed. He's not taking showers or whatever. Those are all symptoms of, they can be of mental health issues. And at this place, there was no support for that. No counseling.
4: Um, well, I, I think that you know one of the things is the parents are as much victims as the kids are. In this They're instance, being yes. fleeced. Yeah. And certainly being preyed upon because what parent doesn't want to do something for their kid, especially if they feel like they're unable to fix a certain situation or they can't get their kid to stop being depressed or stop running around late at night? I mean, I think it was great that episode one opens up with this montage from... Daytime talk shows, where the subject is like, oh, my kid is out of
3: control.
2: I do drugs. I'm very highly sexually active. Man, no problem.
3: On a brightly lit stage sits a drug-addled or sex-addicted, wayward teen and her desperate, exasperated parents.
4: I need respect. We yes. need a
3: Her hair, usually very dyed, or her face, very pierced. She's labeled a wild teen.
5: Do you like the way your life is? What do you think? Yes! I like the way my life is, okay?
0: Laura sounds like she wants to say something. What's up, Laura? I want to talk about
1: that creepy smooshing thing. <laughs>
4: they're Ah, weird. yes. Weird.
3: Every night, there were mandatory cuddling sessions known as smooshing. Staff and residents were both required to participate.
5: I mean, by today's standard, it would all be illegal. You're not allowed to touch students at all we were always all over each other.
1: What was that about? I mean, it was like listening to that part of it, like the absolute we were talking about before, like the sort of, you know, beat you down mind control sort of psychological aspect of this place. That was the most disturbing thing where they're like, and then they had to lay with their counselor who wasn't really a counselor's head in their lap and like pet their hair and stuff. And I'm like, who thought that was a good idea and why? Um, anyone else? Totally, I was just so disturbed by that particular detail.
2: But that's another culty type thing. Yep. they're not, you know, actually having sex, but the Manson family, you know, he used to kind of have them do that, but in a more X-rated version. Mm. And I, you know, even when we were talking about Wild Wild Country where the townspeople see that movie with these, like, weird sort of kind of violent group sexual encounters. Mm-hmm. Do you remember this? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. they, all, they all kind of freak out. They're like, oh, these are the guys who are moving in next to us. So, yeah, I mean, that, again, that's, that's kind of from the cult handbook.
4: Yeah, but as Josh describes, like, part of the thing with the kids is that there's to be no sexual relationships and no sexual tension. Right. Toby. You hear me? No sexual you can attention. Get in trouble
0: for sexual attention on but this podcast. But you? you're going to
4: throw a bunch of 15 and 16 year olds on the floor and have them rolling around, yeah, putting their head in each other's laps <laughs> and stroking their hair, and nothing's going to pop up.
0: So the thing about uncover escaping Nexium, which I believe we all really liked, if my yeah. memory serves me correctly, yep. the one flaw I had with that podcast, and I don't remember if you guys shared any part of that, was it is was a, like a single source podcast. It it, de- it wasn't a single source, but it depended very heavily on one source, Josh Block's friend who had. It was Escape, in the cult. Yeah. Escape yeah. yeah. And of course, there were also a few other people in it too, giving some context, but it was mostly her. Here we have multiple accounts from multiple adults who experienced this place. We have the accounts of the parents. We have the accounts of the expert. And then we have two former employees, including one of the head honcho guys, Rudy, Mm -hmm. who was like basically the counselor, whatever, educator in charge of the place when a lot of these kids were there who are now adults. Toby, what did you think of the fact that he was able to score this incredibly thoughtful interview with Rudy I don't think Josh pulled any punches, and I kind of think Rudy didn't either in some ways. What did you you think about that part of the podcast?
2: Yeah, it was a a great interview. I thought Rudy's attitude towards the whole thing was pretty interesting in that I think he was willing to concede that in hindsight, some, if not a lot of the stuff they were doing was probably questionable. What I thought was, at least I didn't pick up on it, was that he was in any way kind of repentant about it or, you know, kind of felt bad in, in any way. It was just going, oh, yeah, you know, looking back on it, we probably shouldn't have done that. But he, he didn't seem too troubled by that. And, and, and he certainly was put forward as having the reputation as being, you know, as aggressive in this tearing down aspect of things as, as anybody there.
5: I, I don't recall in my own personal experience getting to that danger point of saying, oops, I just went too far. Um... Because, to me, you never went too far. You were just trying to get to that that source of the pain or the fear, whatever it might be, guilt. Um, In retrospect, looking back, yeah, I think uh, there were a number of kids and faculty, myself included, that uh, left with um, some stuff
2: still unresolved. And the way he tried to kind of spin it, that kind of seemed to be one of those, you know, the lies you tell yourself to to make it easier. But the impression that you get about what actually happens is not that you're just trying to dig out some truths about somebody or about the way they feel about themselves. It's, you know, that, that one woman who I think her name was Aaliyah, maybe. Yes. Who, I mean, she was there for two and a half years. Yes. Which I just... I couldn't wrap my head After around. After being called
0: a whore. And the whole thing was she was supposed to accept that she was a whore. Yeah, yeah. It's,
2: it's, that, it's sort of reinforcing this, this thing that the way she acted was whorish.
0: Yes. Lara, have you ever heard of this Synanon cult before?
4: Synanon is a corporation. It's a corporation whose business it is to cure dope addicts.
3: This is from the 1965 movie aptly titled dope Synanon. Dope. It's based on the real-life story of Charles E. Diederich a brash figure known for his no-bullshit, unconventional approach to drug addiction.
4: 140 people who couldn't live without dope are living here, and they're living here without any crutches.
5: We drink coffee and we smoke cigarettes. We drink a hell of a lot of coffee and we smoke a hell of a lot of cigarettes. But we don't shoot dope.
1: Um, I hadn't heard of that cult. I did look it up because I was curious about it. And it was interesting, you know, that there was this background to this school um, where people that, you know, came from that cult, which was like a pretty hardcore, sounds like drug and alcohol, tough love kind of um, place. Then started this school. And so I was like, as soon as I heard that, I'm like, oh, my gosh, all I can think of is Toby. And like, there's always a cult angle. (laughs) (laughs) But that was that was really interesting. Like the history portion of this where we actually went back to what was it like the 60s when this this was sort of, you know, and they were talking about like the people that were hanging around this place sort of legitimizing it and then how that sort of, you know, grew to this offshoot with this school for, you know, therapeutic school, therapeutic community for the teens. And then if you look this place up, the C-Doo school, I mean, they had a lot of schools in different places. And all of them, again, were in these like super remote locations, That's which right. again, makes me think of a cult, like being out, you know, like, okay, you're way out here. You can't get away. Your
4: parents can't come see you.
1: <laughs> That's right. It's like that story. Um, You know, I think I've told this before about my cousin, uh, Dwight, and his friend, his roommate, from college and how they got taken in by the Moonies and they were like <laughs> backpacking around their um, summer off from college. And Dwight was like, he was like an Eagle Scout. And he's like, I think something's funny here. But the Moonies, <laughs> like they, and first of all, they were like making them harvest zucchini for like days. He said he was off zucchini for like 10 years after that. Hmm. But they partner you up with like some, like, you know, attractive person who's like your handler. And so his friend, his friend, Steve, didn't want to leave because he had this, like, very attractive girl. And then they, like, took his clothes to do his laundry. And Steve's like, I can't leave. They have my clothes. If
4: you want to hear more of this story, you have to subscribe to Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to Loris. Leave it to Bricker Podcast because she goes into this. That's
1: true. She does about her cousin Dwight and Mooney's. Yeah. yeah. But I want to talk about that private eye guy. Can we talk about him?
5: Why would this person with an Asian accent, not strong, not overbearing, has specifics that we didn't put out.
0: We do meet the private detective who was put in charge of trying to find Daniel for his poor parents. And he has a lot of different stories about, you know, where what may have happened to him. He says he talked to people who, without getting too much into spoiler area, think different things may have happened to him. He may be alive. He may not be alive. Who knows? But he is also so full of it. Is he not with his... It's always bad... When you're trying to get someone on the phone and they just keep telling you they can't talk to you because they're dying, and then they keep telling you that over and over yeah. again, and they're like, for how long could you possibly be dying? I think your
4: stepbrother... Writes an email
0: from the same email address. Yeah. So, Laura, you think that private eye, as a private eye yourself, what do you think of him? Do you think he was maybe a little bit
1: shady? You know, it was hard because I, you, know, you want to assume the best intentions when you hear somebody say that this is the case that haunted them. This is like the one that got away, the one that's always been on their mind. But then the way that it lined up so perfectly that he's he's dying, it's like it's like a bucket list. And then mysteriously, just because he comes back in all these years later in 2019, so it was like 2004 when Daniel disappeared and there was no information all those years. And then suddenly, 2019, he gets this phone call that the guy Daniel is still in the area and then oh my god amazing he goes down to the pier and somebody has just seen him there I'm like are you kidding me well you
4: heard that someone was going to do a podcast about him
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah I just kept thinking Toby didn't you just keep thinking like
0: if theoretically you are a shady PI with a cottage industry in uh looking for runaway kids on behalf of this very sketchy uh school would you not perhaps if you were shady give the parents a more hope than perhaps there was a reason to have so that they would keep paying you to do this investigation
2: oh yeah Hundred percent. It reminded me, uh, Maddie McCann. Like there was a private eye who was in that, who did sort of a similar thing, which is kind of just keep enough hope there to keep milking the money out without actually, you know, making any real headway on the case or even expecting to make any real headway. You just you just keep giving kind of you know vague reports to keep the money flowing. I got a
0: lead. It's going to be ten grand (laughs) for you to find out what it is. All right. Well, I think we should do what we do. Let's let folks know should they check out. the new true crime mystery slash reported journalism podcast, The Lost Kids from UPC. Thumbs up or
1: thumbs down? Laura Brigger, I'm going to start with you. What do you think? This is a big thumbs up. This was a super interesting story. And so the way that it was framed narratively with like the introduction, uh, you know, focusing on Daniel's story and then the background into the industry and like Cult background, and then there's you know there's some wrap up with current events, but it was just really well told, and we had a lot of interesting people to listen to, and it reminded me, you know, we had a place like this in the town I grew up in, um, a, a reform school where Michael Skakel went um, Ooh, for a period of scandal. time. Yeah, you know, I've kind of been fascinated by that generation. Of course, that was in the '80s, but that sort of reform school, therapeutic school industry is is kind of interesting. Um, and this was really shedding light on an angle that we haven't heard a lot about. So I would say thumbs up. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for The Lost Kids?
2: Yeah, I give it a, a big thumbs up as well. You know, I think it's well reported. I think, you know, it gets into some interesting ideas about how, how do you deal, or I guess I should say, how do you not deal with troubled kids? Um, the the history, the stuff about Sidonon was uh, really good. There's some... Sort of intense and affecting interviews. Overall, I, I thought it was very, very good.
0: What about you, Kevin Flynn? Thumbs up or thumbs down for the Lost Kids?
4: I thought this was an amazing story. I'm a thumbs up. Um Josh Block just keeps coming up with some powerful podcast series. So all sort of on the same theme there. You know, you've got Nexium, which is a cult, and this, which you can you can say, is definitely kind of a cult. He could have been a goofy sleuth case mm. where we look at just at the missing person, Daniel Ewan. Instead, that's a, that's a starting point to look at a bigger issue. And he never takes his eye off the ball, what the real story is. And it's about this underregulated industry that takes advantage not only of parents writing checks, but kids who need some legitimate help or could at least benefit from a legitimate curriculum mm. to handle their issues. So for me, it's a thumbs up.
0: Thumbs up for me, too. I'll tell you one thing we didn't talk about a lot. This podcast is beautifully produced. The quality of even, like, the microphones is outstanding. The mixing mm-hmm. is excellent. And in terms of, like, the writing, the reporting is very straight. They get all the people that they should have to tell the story. And it's a complicated story that is obviously centered around one family and one missing kid. One of the things I really loved about the podcast, Kevin, you mentioned that it could have gone off in, like, some dopey, you know, true crime direction. Mm-hmm. They did do a lot of the things that a true crime podcast is supposed to do. They visited the scene of the crime. They went on a little bit of like a a road trip to sort of go to the place this was. They followed a, a young woman who had run away to sort of see her journey. And it was all perfect. It was done with purpose and it was perfect. It was not a situation where it was like, okay, Here we go, because this is what true crime podcasts are supposed to do. No, we actually learned something from that journey, and we learned something every time we took a turn. So I just think The Lost Kids was great. It was interesting, beautifully reported, and yes, dare I say, an entertaining listen. So for me, huge thumbs up. So, Kevin, before we continue the show, let's do a little bit of business, shall we? Yeah. What is going on on our Patreon right now for people who go to Patreon.com and support us there at Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media? Well,
4: they'll get to listen to the Crime Writers on After Show. What are we
0: talking about on the After Show today? We
4: haven't talked about it yet. Yes, we have. Have we? We're
0: going to be talking about the very weird, disappointing ending to the show Run.
4: That we reviewed and we were all thumbs up-y on.
0: No, not Most Toby. of us. We're going to owe Toby an apology.
4: Apparently. So that's what
0: we're talking about on the After show you can get that right now what else can you get on our patreon
4: we've got coming up a new edition of leave it to bricker yes and lara's mystery podcast their mystery podcast and she's got a good uh, cinematic mystery for us nice and married with podcast is going to be out too
0: we have a new married podcast coming out that's going to be amazing chock full of amazing advice yes and heart yes (laughs) (laughs) well i'm really excited you can get all that stuff and more at patreon now kevin do we have any Patreon patron saints this week?
4: Yes, our Patreon patron saints are Amanda Wilson and Aiden Harvey. Bless you.
0: <laughs> Toby, do you want to give a shout out to the Patreon patron saints?
2: Uh, yes. <laughs> hey, man. Thanks. <laughs> so-
0: And also with you. Oh, (laughs) God. Right on. All right.
2: Toby, the king of ad-libbing. Was there kind of an ecclesiastical thing I was supposed to do there? (laughs)
0: Nope, you did it. You did it in your own Toby Ball way. Oh, okay, thanks. All right, let's move on, shall we? Everything all right, miss? What's your name? I don't know.
5: What is your address? I don't know. How about your birthday?
0: I don't know. A woman wakes up in a canoe in the middle of a lake with no memory of where she is or how she got there. I knew something was wrong with me. But I couldn't explain it to anyone. It was like the people around me were keeping a secret. Like we were in a movie. And everyone knew we were in a movie except for me. If I did something wrong, I have no idea what it is. The trail leads her to the Geist Corporation, the mysterious company behind the mind-erasing experiments on veterans in the defunct homecoming program.
5: How did we get here? What we did, no good can come of that.
2: But what if we let the crazy world down? If you keep
3: picking at this, it's gonna start bleeding.
0: Prime is out with its second season of Homecoming. While the first track closely with a popular Gimlet podcast, the follow-up goes in a totally different direction. Gone is Heidi and her search for Walter Cruz. Instead, mostly new characters deal with the effects of Geist's new product. Now, we are going to be talking about plot points for season two of Homecoming. The whole series is available to stream now. So to remain spoiler free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes to hear our thumbs up or thumbs down review. Kevin, very bold choice to not do season two of the podcast. Not really. Homecoming. Why? Because they couldn't get Julia well, Roberts again? <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, no, I thought season two of the podcast was a big disappointment. Mm. I felt like... That didn't really go anywhere. Uh, we had Heidi return in season two looking for Walter Cruz and not being able to find him. And it just didn't seem like anything really happened and that the story was really advanced at all. So this was a good decision to sort of go in a new direction. Julia Roberts, I mean, I think if she wanted to do it, she would have done it. Mm. But the really, I mean, what more is there for Heidi in the TV version to do? At the end of season one, she found Walter and was kind of good with where he was. So is this still Walter's story to kind of get through?
0: Yeah. Now, Laura, the one thing we don't have in this version of Homecoming, season two, we don't have a huge mystery other than what happened to Jackie Slash Alex, which by the way, is that's barely a mystery at all. Like I figured that out within two seconds. But like really it's really just sort
1: of an unpeeling rather than a like a big, deep mystery. Did that work for you? It did because I found, you know, even in like thinking back to season one of the original podcast, I remember feeling sort of frustrated because, you know, that one was told through the phone calls and we didn't have the whole story. And it was like, you kind of could figure out maybe where the mystery was going. And, you know, and so I felt, you know, more frustrated with the storyline in that where it was like more unresolved sort of threads. And in this, I felt like everything really tied up pretty neatly the way that they told the story. So yeah, you have the mystery in the first episode. And, and initially, you know, you're thinking, oh, she's another one of the soldiers. And then pretty soon, that's not the case. But the way that they use this like flashback between the past and the present to sort of show how everybody ended up where they did leading up to that moment in the first episode... Um, It was pretty effective in in filling in the mystery that was there, which, again, wasn't like a big mystery, but also like keeping the pace of the story moving along. Um, So it worked better for me now uh, because I definitely had a lot of like WTF moments in the first season. Like what's happening now, Toby, the, the storytelling structure of this is really interesting
0: unusual, and I think very hard to do well. The first episode basically tells a whole encapsulated story. You have Jackie slash Alex, we don't know if she's Alex until the end of the episode, waking up in the canoe. You see her go through the process of trying to figure things out. She goes to the hospital, then she makes her way to Geist. At the end, she you know reunites with Audrey, who we don't know they're supposed to be reuniting, and it's revealed, and it's sort of like, you know, we kind of along the way meet the head of Geist, Mr. Geist, Um, and it's, it's sort of a whole encapsulated story, and then the next six episodes flip it around and show us the backstory to the thing we just watched, and it includes a ton of head fakes. Including one is I when we first meet Geist, I think we're sort of led to believe he's this nefarious evil character. Uh, when we first meet Jackie slash Alex, we're sort of led to believe she's sort of more of a victim without more agency. You know, Audrey, we kind of thought was this supervillain, cold as ice. You know, all these head fakes, and you know, so we, we sort of see the other side of that. I thought it was really, really well done. I liked this so much. What did you think of the way they laid out the story? Did it work for you, Toby?
2: Oh, yeah, it, it 100% did. I think they, they did a whole bunch of different things, and I think they did them all well. A, a couple of things that I, that really kind of struck me is one is they did a really good job of kind of foreshadowing, like giving you clues about things that were going to happen, and then you get to a point Where you see, like, this is when there's going to be the fight with Walter Cruz at the bar. Mm. I wonder how that's going to go. What's that all about? And because you know that that's the way it's going to end, there's like this inherent tension in that scene. And I would say even more so is the scene where where they go fishing. Mm. And it, it must be like a 12 or 15 minute basically scene of them driving and talking and then walking and talking. Being over there. Deployment.
1: It had add as pluses and minuses.
5: Oh yeah, like what? What do you mean? Give me an example.
0: Okay. Like a minus would be... the sand. The sand got up in
5: everywhere. Right.
2: No, I remember that much.
0: No, I don't think you do with your plumbing.
4: That's
2: funny. And I thought the whole thing was really intense and really well-written and well-acted. And then the other thing, of the many things it does well, I thought it's not even really character arcs, but it's the impression you get of characters at the beginning and how without them really changing, your perception of who they are changes. Right.
0: Like we see a lot of scenes twice. Is that what you mean?
2: Yeah, but it's even like uh, with Audrey... Like she starts off, you know, she's, she seems sort of smart, but timid a little bit. And she has to be kind of like, you know, talked up and gets going and stuff. And then by the end, you just realize that, in fact, she's like this very driven, take no prisoners type businesswoman who just happened to be stuck at this desk job for a while.
0: Toby, can I just take issue with the one thing, though, about that? What? I actually think it's a double head fake with her. Okay. Because we are left at the end of season one to think she's been in control all along. We see that initial scene where she totally like fires Colin and she's very scary. At the beginning of this season, that gets torn down, that first impression we have her with a head fake where it's her partner, Alex, who's told her this is what you're going to do and you're going to follow the script and and she's like I don't think it's going to work like I can't do that and she's like yes you can you just go in there and fake it and you just do it and then it works and then it turns out all along she's been this so it's like it's like a double head fake because for a couple episodes in this season we think Audrey is basically just doing what Alex wants and she's not the one who like is going for the brass ring but it's Alex making her do it right
2: oh oh yeah absolutely and and then at the end particularly the last episode It's like very clear, she's like, I or we have won. Like, this is what we were after, I accomplished it. Why why do you have amnesia and are not happy? Right. (laughs) He was a
1: threat.
0: You were taking control of the situation because that's what you do. We had a choice between what he wanted and what we wanted, between winning and losing and we chose us. Us? Yes. We take care of each other because no one else will. You, me, our family, everything else, everyone else, they're just people. Kevin, what did you think? I mean, it is hard. I I said this to you, we were watching it. Whenever there's a kind of story where like, you you know what's gonna happen and they make you watch it again, Mm -hmm. I find that sometimes incredibly boring and difficult. And somehow this was the opposite of boring and Well, difficult. I don't think
4: it made you watch it again.
0: No, but you knew what was going to happen. Right. And, and That's watching, not
4: unusual in storytelling.
0: Yeah, but watching something, but it was so—it was not so specifically. It's really hard to explain. I think it's because in episode one-
4: What got repeated? They
0: told you, well, we saw the scene with um, Audrey and Geist twice where he was in, in the office and she okay. was to visit him. Why do you want to speak at the launch? Leonard, did you hear me?
5: I'm watching your Wolf. You got to be fired up.
0: There were a few moments like that, like but that. also yep. in the first episode they told us everything that was going to happen. As Toby mentioned, they said last time you were in this bar you were sitting with a guy. Yes. You drank three right. beers and three Well, that's shots not being
4: repetitive. That, that's setting you up so that you know what to what's coming. But they
0: told us all the details of what was coming. Yeah. And I found myself thinking like this could be really boring and it is oh. not.
4: No, I, mean, I agree with you. I, I did not find that boring at all. It I wasn't, thought that was yeah. good storytelling mm-hmm. to set it up like that. Just to jump back to Audrey for a second. We knew like in season one of the TV show we see Audrey as this receptionist and then for some reason right she's in that meeting with Colin
0: firing him
4: but we knew in the podcast that Audrey that character was a a, you know some power broker somebody powerful and so when we first see her in the TV show as a receptionist I'm like oh what was that rewrite about so they get her there but in a different way they never tie it up in season one right and that's fine you don't have to tie up all the little loose threads in order for it to be satisfying narratively but to come back and to sort of like, you know, tie that thread in a way that advances the story was uh, was really good.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the performances in this season, which mm-hmm. I thought were phenomenal. Lara Bricker, scale of one to 10, how delighted were you to see Joan Cusack appear in this season as like a career military officer badass? Do
5: you know what you are? You're stubborn. You just only see things your way. Uh, I don't think there's more than one way to see this. Of course there is. There's a million ways. You put things in context, you take them out of context. That's how new ideas
0: happen. It takes nerve. Everything you want that's usually played by some grizzled old Jack Nicholson type man, Joan Cusack was doing. What did you think
1: of that performance? 9.8. Um, I was that excited. <laughs> hey. I love Joan Cusack. I also love her brother. He was like one of my teen heartthrobs. But no, I I thought she was great because she has just such great delivery and she's so funny. And um, even like, I hate to say this, this sounds so awful and morbid, but even when she's like losing her memory in the field and she's about to tip over, it was just still so entertaining. Yeah, she's phenomenal. I'm supposed to go to my daughter's wedding. <laughs> and then he's like, you're going to get a sunburn. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is so perfect. She's like, give me a damn hat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was great. It was it was great. And I loved also um, Leonard Geist, who was from The Lonesome Dove. He was July Johnson. Oh, Jesus, <laughs> Laurie. <laughs>
5: you see the gate back there? You didn't drive your truck through it, so... I guess you saw it. You
0: cannot refer to him as a <laughs> lonesome dove guy. He's been in so many other good things. I believe he's been nominated for Academy Awards. Who? Chris Cooper. He was oh, the dad in October yeah, yeah. Sky. Yeah, yeah. He's like in so many good things in Lara, of course.
4: They're talking about the guy from the bar with the oxygen mask. With the <laughs> no. Like, hey, no.
0: Toby, what did you think of the performances? I, I, In your notes, see that you are not 100% as enamored with Janelle Monae as I am. I could watch her make eggs wrap gifts I'd watch her tie shoes I think she's completely captivating and mm. so beautiful that even if she was not a decent actress like I just love looking at her but what, what did you think of the performances How in the show you can say
4: that and I can't
0: you can. Okay. I mean.
4: She's just so beautiful, I can just look at her. She
0: has just presence. It's not yeah. just her. It's not just the way she looks. Yeah, it's yeah, the way, right? it's what she does with how she looks. Exactly. You know, and I mean, she's just she just has a, like a lot of presence. But Toby, what did you think of the performances in the show?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think they're all good. For, for whatever reason, like that kind of character where you're sort of confused all the time. Can you relate? Yeah, maybe it hits too close <laughs> to home. <hold. laughs>
0: but what did you think about her? What about you think about her scene with Walter? Because there was a no, lot there. No, yeah,
2: no. She, she did a good job. I, I, I felt like uh, the guy who played Walter, uh, Stephen James and, uh, and Hong Chow were both really, really good. I thought Janelle Monet was also good. I mean, she was given a lot to do. Uh, quite honestly and I don't know for whatever reason like these like sort of somewhat flat affect characters I don't know if that's like really good acting or just sort of being blank mm. but to, to be fair she basically acts two parts because she also acts the part of the,
0: Pre-amnesia, the Right. What, what are you thinking? Colin what about him? he's a tool yeah he's a jerk but what does that have to do with him? no he's a tool and we can use him this is an opportunity. Kevin, I'd like you to respond to one of Toby's notes for me. You ready?
4: Yeah.
1: He
0: wrote me this note. This season's quirkiness worked for me in a way last season didn't. I wonder if they saw Watchmen. Hmm. Well, we know at least one person did, right?
4: Yeah. Audrey played uh, <laughs> Lady, what's her name?
0: Yeah. She was in Watchmen, so she yeah. definitely saw it when she was yeah. in the show. <laughs> um, and she did
4: great in that that role, too. You know? I know. I, yeah. Yeah.
0: What do you think about you know? I think they were much more restrained this season in their use of sort of the artsy Hitchcocky cinematography. I mean, we talked about this last year. The, the the people who make the show made the conscious choice to use music from Alfred Hitchcock and other period films, and also use shooting techniques mm-hmm. from mid century films. Like we saw a couple of shots, like the picture of a mountain was actually a photograph uh, or a model. You, you see a lot of yeah, trick or the shots cameras locked down. Yeah, what do you think the, of that use here?
4: Well, the the director or if he's the director. Or the executive producer, but uh, one of the one of the smart people, creative people behind this is Sam Esmail. Smail from Mr. Robot. Mr. Robot. He was and, the
0: showrunner the first season, yeah.
4: Yeah, and so he certainly likes to do his film school uh, camera technique. Let's do all that stuff. Um, you know Dutch angles. And... Yeah, I don't
0: think he directed these episodes.
4: though. <laughs> no, no. But you do. You did see more of those. You know, certainly. I, I was thinking of the scene where Walter's distracted driving his truck, and he, yeah, it was very Hitchcockian. When you want to see him the in the car, mirror? In his mirror, but also you can see the car coming towards him that he can't, mm. which is a which is a very Hitchcockian uh, note. So I thought visually it was very good. Always very creative. I did feel like it missed sort of that big feeling that the borrowed orchestral scores from big films hmm. uh, that it, it brought to season one.
0: So let's just talk a little bit about the ending of season two of Homecoming because it really did have an ending. It didn't leave us thinking like, you know, where's Heidi? Where's whatever? I mean, yeah. maybe we get the hint that Walter is now going to hunt down these other guys and, and try to help them or something. He's got that book of names or whatever at the end. Well, Laura, what do you think of the end? I mean, he gets his revenge by making all these fancy people at this party with all those balloons
1: wiping their brains which think of that I kind of loved it when I realized at that moment and I saw him I was like oh boy because that was the one where you don't have the flashback to see the full conversation that he had the night before with Leonard like you did with a lot of the other things in the season where they'd go back and you'd be like oh that's how that came about but you realize what happened but then you know I did feel like there was sort of a finality to this season. Because, I mean, this whole sort of podcast and the whole story for me, you know, back in season one of the podcast has been like holding Geist accountable for what they had done. And now they've done it because they're all wiped out. So I think, you know, a season three where Walter goes around with that list of names now and tries to like help the people, even though he can't remember his own history. I don't know. I, I guess it doesn't. Maybe it will work, but I just feel like if they ended it now, it would still be kind of a perfect ending because you can kind of just surmise that that's what he's going to go do. He's going to mm-hmm. go off and he's going to find the people. And we don't need to see that because we've seen all these Geist people and, the you know, Department of Defense people just fall over after they drank the... Uh, you know, secret bathtub punch or whatever it was. The very obviously bright red punch, which they put in the
0: Moscow Mule Cups to hide it. Toby uh-huh. Ball, what did you think of the ending of the season?
2: Yeah, so were they not dying?
0: I thought it was pretty explicit that they were did going to- Did you think
2: he poisoned everybody? I thought
0: they were going to all pass out and they were all going to wake up later and not remember anything about wait, who they are. Wait,
2: Toby, uh, what did
4: you think the ending
2: was? Oh, I, you know, I thought maybe they were all dead. Jim Jones. Like hearing you explain it, it makes sense but i didn't i didn't pick <laughs> up on any <laughs> i didn't pick up on any cue that anybody was going to suddenly pop up and be ready to go well we
4: saw
0: it happen with Janelle Monet's character at the beginning she she was knocked out and then she yeah. woke up with a memory and toby are you colorblind i'm just going to ask you this question i don't mean this in like a uh, pejorative way yeah are you by any chance colorblind
2: um no why
0: because the stuff they drank i mean the cue was that it was bright red and yeah. the memory wiping stuff was bright red the berries were bright red the roller was bright red Yeah, i, but it's a
4: very, I can't like, imagine you could be at a party with like 200 something people and everybody's going to drink the first drink at the same time. Right. It's toast. And that there's nobody in the crowd who's like- On the program. In the program. Like, <laughs> no, no. I'm gonna, I will not be drinking with everybody. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out season two of Homecoming on Prime? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Thumbs up or thumbs down for this season
1: two of a thing that we just thought was okay. In season one. Um, I, th- I say thumbs up. And you know what? Even if you haven't watched season one, you can watch season two. It'll take you a while to figure it out. But it was fun. I watched the whole thing. Like once I started watching, I didn't want to stop. And I just binged the whole thing in like an afternoon. So uh, I would go with thumbs up. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for season two of Homecoming on Prime?
2: I was not excited about watching this in the slightest because I didn't like Homecoming season one. Mm. But uh, I really liked it. It's hard to believe it's the same franchise in my mind. Although it's got you know, it's it's got sort of a similar sort of visual feel, I guess. And there's some of the same quirkiness, but I just felt like the writing was so much stronger. And it might have been that they got to move away from the podcast source material a little bit and, you know, exert a little creativity of their own. So I, you know, an enthusiastic thumbs up.
0: What about you, Kevin?
2: I
4: am also a thumbs up I am glad that Season 2, the TV show, did a better job of answering what happened to Walter Cruz than the podcast did. In fact, I'm not very anxious about listening to Season 3 of the Homecoming podcast, if it ever is made, but I would be interested in watching Season 3 of the Prime version. You know, it didn't have Julia Roberts, didn't have our, uh, our good friend there, the Inspector General, running around and... But uh, Stephen James, you know, gave another great performance here. And also uh, Janelle Monet. some great performances all around. And, uh, yeah, thumbs up for me.
0: Yeah, I loved season two of Homecoming on Prime. I think if you haven't watched season one, I do think you could just watch season two as a standalone. There's plenty of context clues. You'll figure it out. I don't know if the writing team who wrote the season is the same writing team who wrote the podcast, although their names are on it. I'll just say, like, my fantasy is that this was their take 2 of what season 2 of the podcast could have been. Yeah. I don't know if you guys remember like we really liked season 1 of the podcast. We thought it was really well written. And then as a TV show, it just fell flat because it felt like it was doing an imitation of something that was better as a podcast. Yeah, And also some of the cast, I think that Julia Roberts' casting was a mistake, I'll be honest. I think that she doesn't quite have the same like harried vulnerability that Katherine Keener did with her vocal performance in the podcast. And she also was a little too old, which I hate saying, except that just seeing her sort of With the romantic possibilities with this 20-something actor, we're just a little off. Um, But season two, basically, like all of those elements that were weird and bad have just been removed from the equation. And everything that's good, the sort of intrigue of a memory-erasing drug, all this stuff, is in. It was, I thought, super good. I loved it. So I'm going to give it a big thumbs up for season two of Homecoming on Prime. And now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of the week. The The Associated Press is reporting that the number of those annoying robocalls is down because of the pandemic. Monitoring organizations say calls asking for credit cards or your social security number are down 40 percent over the last two months. Most of the robocalls are generated from operation centers in India and the Philippines, and fewer scammers are able to make it into work. We shed no tears for unemployed con artists. But what about the poor bots who will no longer get to use their knowledge of area codes, synthetic voice generation, and automobile extended warranties? Remember, bots aren't born bad. They're just programmed that way. So, panel, here's my question for you. Now that the labor market is getting a little bit tight... What will these robots do for work? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you.
1: Um, well, you know, they usually call during dinner time. I would propose they shift their model to call in the morning to wake up all the lovely teenagers that don't want to <laughs> get up for remote school. Good idea. Wake up call. Yeah, wake up call. Because this week what I started doing, um, I started hiding an alarm clock in my son's room in like different locations to go off with that annoying like, eh. eh, eh, eh. Um, But I think a robocall would have done the same trick. And then I wouldn't have been on the receiving end of uh, his ire.
2: (laughs) Profane outburst.
1: (laughs) Toby Ball, what do you think these poor robocall
0: robots are doing for work these days?
2: I think they're on Twitter trying to sway our election.
0: It's probably true. Sad but true. Kevin, what do you think?
4: I think those bots can go back to giving five-star podcast reviews.
0: That's true. To us, please. No. (laughs) Please to us. Feel free to give them to us if you're out there, bots. We're not going to pay for you. We'd like them for free, please. Yes, thank you. But seriously, listeners, please, if you like the show, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. All right. That probably does it for the night. But Laura Bricker, before we go, do we have a cat
1: of the week this week? We do have a cat of the week this week from Maddie Cowdy. And it is her cat, Cecile, the calico cat, who celebrated 19 years in cat years. They had a little birthday cake for Cecile. So that's like 92 years old in human years, uh, Maddie writes. And the reason I like this cat is because it wouldn't hurt a fly, literally. And my cats are just like killing everything. So I was like, there is a cat out there that is kind. She gets along just fine with her one remaining cat, Fang. She is the gentlest soul in the world, and we feel lucky to be graced with her presence every day. Maddie says she's been listening to our show for years. She first heard of it from listening to undisclosed addendum, on which Robbie would recommend crime writers. On you have been my constant companions ever since. I love each of you for your personalities for different reasons, and have laughed and cried with you over the years. Thank you for continuing to create. Great content for your listeners. So
0: I love her. Yeah, I love her. I love you too. You make me laugh and cry too. You really do. Well, that's good. All right, Laura Bricker, people want to reach out to you and send you more glowing reviews of our podcast. How can they find you on Twitter to send you their cats of the week, even if it's a different kind of animal? At Lara Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you and say, hey, Toby, I believe in UFOs. How come you don't? How can they find you on Twitter?
2: At Toby Ball NH.
0: And Kevin Flynn, folks want to reach out to you and send you their artfully made side by sides of you. And Ulysses S. Grant, how can they find you on Twitter?
4: I'm at Kevin P. Flynn.
0: And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at RebLavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On. And please join our amazing community and our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. Support the show at Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media. You'll get all our extra podcasts, including the after show our theme song was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission our line editor is the incredibly handsome Henry Lavoie our social media and newsletter maven on maternity leave is fellow Taco Bell stan Meredith Plunkett this show was recorded in the yoga Loft above the Bodega in Bay St. Louis Mississippi studio otherwise known as Studio C the closet in our basement where we also yell at each other about our deepest secrets on behalf of all the crime writers thanks so much for listening we will catch you later later Toby, I hear some mere serious construction going on by your house. It's very exciting. It's adding yeah. a lot to this podcast right now. Well, what's happening? It's Usually, fucking... it's my house. What
1: is that? Yeah. <laughs> no, they're seriously
2: after they, dark. they're they're doing a bridge. Uh, they're repairing a bridge that's like three hundred yards from our house. So we didn't record, but last week. They're doing night paving for two nights, uh. and there was literally uh. like a, a parade of you know rollers uh, <laughs> like nice. up my street, I it. I love like it. like idling okay. on our street. Don't
0: worry about it, Toby. Laura has the incessant screen door behind her, and you have. Have you dump trucks? Yeah.
2: Business in Crime, crime Media. media.